Jesus has been giving scathing parables to the chief priests and the elders. He's entered into Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, and many are afraid of losing their power and authority. He has such influence over the crowds. So two groups that are usually antithetical to one another, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, actually team up. The Pharisees are about living the law, and many of the crowds respect them greatly. However, the Pharisees and the crowds do not believe it's lawful to pay the tax to Caesar. They think they're not bound by that law because of their Jewish faith. In addition, the coin is problematic in and of itself for two reasons. First, it has the image of Caesar. Back in Exodus, there's a forbidden law that says you cannot have any graven images. So to depict a man on a coin would be very problematic for the Jewish people. In addition, Jesus says something, not only show me the image, but also show me the inscription on the coin. The inscription read exactly this, Caesar Tiberius Augustus, son of divine Caesar Augustus. It literally said, son of God on the coin. Imagine what that would be to a Jewish person living in that time. Not only is it a graven image, but also the inscription is a mockery of God himself and the king who was considered the son of God, like David and Solomon. They were called sons of God. And of course, Jesus himself, who's literally God the son. So imagine all of these things coming together in this one coin, this one mockery of what should be done in terms of honoring God versus honoring Caesar. The plan is this. The Sadducees are in league with Herod, and Herod is not even full Jew. He's appointed by the Roman authorities to rule over that area. The Sadducees want to pay the tax because the Romans support them. These two groups come together. They ask Jesus a question. They say, is it lawful to pay the census tax? If Jesus says yes, the crowds and Pharisees reject him for being a Roman sympathizer. And his life becomes very dangerous at that point. When you're hated by the crowds and the Pharisees, the leading people of the time, you could even be in peril of death. But if Jesus says, no, it is not lawful to pay the census tax, then the Sadducees just have to talk to Herod and get the Roman soldiers to arrest him and put him to death for sedition. That's the scenario Jesus is walking into in the midst of this gospel. I think there's a lot we can learn in our own political times from Jesus' response. He is simply above the political commentary and the trap that's actually launched at Jesus is recoiled and attacks those who try to entrap him. Jesus' plan is to say, show me the coin. And he says clearly, this is Caesar's graven image, so give it back to him. Have nothing to do with it. Therefore, it is lawful. But at the same time, he gets at something much deeper. Give to God what is God's. And this is the real genius of Jesus' answer. Though the coin has the image of Caesar, each and every human being has the image of God. We read in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, man was created in his image after his likeness. 
God created man after his image and likeness. Give to God what is God's simply means we who were created in God's image ought to offer our entire lives back to God. The coin can go to Caesar, but us, our entire selves, goes to God. And in addition, by virtue of our baptism, unlike Caesar, who called himself the son of God, his dad, the dead Caesar Augustus, we are sons and daughters of God by virtue of our baptism. We've truly been adopted by the Father in Jesus Christ and are sons and daughters of God, which is truly amazing. Now, to get practical, what can we glean from Jesus's amazing, not only attempt, but successful maneuver around this political debate? These two people who absolutely hate Jesus and come together even though they hate one another. And I think during this time of politics, we can learn to, to hate it. We don't like political conversations. People's opinions are set. We're not going to change anyone's mind. Everyone's working from an agenda. What benefit is it to talk about these issues when people just get more entrenched and angry? For us to give ourselves fully to God, for us to obey what Jesus says in the gospel, give to God what is God's, we need to have two things. First, we need to have full possession of ourselves. We cannot give what we do not possess. If we do not fully possess ourselves, how can we give that as a gift to God? And the second thing that goes along with that, peace is an element of what keeps our integrity. If we don't have peace of heart, then we lose ourselves and are unable to make a gift of ourselves to God. And here's what I mean. When we listen to the radio or watch television and hear some of the things that we're hearing in this time of really political um, aggression, upheaval, whatever you want to call it, we lose our peace. We get so wrapped up in the world and we're thinking, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? There's rule by fear and anxiety and there's nothing left for us. We lose ourselves. We lose our peace. And this clearly cannot be the way forward. Our salvation is not in politics. Our salvation is in our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name under which to be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. And the powers that be, the forces in our world, are trying to draw us away from the one true God and salvation in him and make us follow in image, to follow politics, figures, and policies as if that were our salvation. But you and I know that's not true. Our salvation is in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is king of the universe. We know that in etiquette, there's two things that we're not supposed to talk about. That's politics and religion. You know this, yes? Nod your head if you know what I'm saying. Good, okay. When conversation comes up, we can control what we listen to and what we see on television. But when conversation comes to us, how do we deal with this? How do we glean from Jesus the strategy to deal with these political conversations that are not aimed at truth, but aimed at getting us angry or losing our peace or some other sort of thing that is not good? 
or true. And I would say this, if someone brings up politics, which is the first taboo thing, they lose the right for us to not bring up religion. You've lost that right. So this is about their soul. When they talk to us about politics, like, okay, I see what you're doing. I'm going to talk to you about faith, about religion. So when they say, well, I can't stand this candidate, or I can't believe that nobody's doing anything about this issue, or this issue is so important, I don't know how anyone could disagree, you say, okay, tell me more. And you let them go off and say what they think. And then one approach is to say, tell me, what are you doing personally about that issue that you're so passionate about? Because at the end of the day, November 3rd, being our end-all, be-all, if my candidate wins, yay, if my candidate loses, the world is ending, that is an abdication of responsibility. If these issues are so important, we should be doing something tangibly, here and now, every day, to advance the cause of that issue, the justice and truth at stake in that issue. And to point that out, I think, is very beneficial. What are you doing concretely? And maybe they have something good. And praise God if they do have something good to say about that. But to say, why are you so wrapped up and why is all of your hope in November 3rd in who wins that race when at the end of the day you can do something tangibly about this issue now in whatever small way you can. But don't abdicate your responsibility to deal with that issue now. And then furthermore, to get at the good of their soul, to say, okay, if things go wrong, if things don't go your way, or let's just say you're right and things completely collapse, what are you doing with the thing that you do have control over, your eternal destiny? Where is your soul? Have you taken care of the most important thing? If everything in the world goes south, what are you doing to make sure you're in God's good graces? Are you seeking confession? Are you sorry for your sins? Do you pray? Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And these are things that we can approach. This is not a problem. They brought up politics. We can bring up religion. Not in a, a way that puts people off, but really out of general concern for their soul. We desire their salvation. So I encourage you to work a line along the line of thought of Jesus to be above this political conversation and be able to aim at the good of their soul and to get them to enact goodness in their life towards the policies that they care about most now and not to abdicate their responsibility to one vote in November 3rd. Finally, I want to bring up our first reading. Seemingly out of nowhere, there's not necessarily a direct correspondence with the gospel, but our first reading talks about Cyrus, the Persian king, who is the man who brought the people of Jerusalem and Judea back to their land. In 587 BC, because of the sins of the Jewish people, they were exiled to Babylon. Now in 537, the Persian Empire has defeated the Babylonians, and Cyrus is the one who's fulfilling the will of God, restoring the people of Israel back to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the temple. What's interesting is Cyrus is not Jewish. 
He's completely pagan. He's a Persian. And also, he has no idea that he is doing the will of the Lord. He is being used as an instrument to accomplish the will of God. Just like the Babylonians who were committing God's judgment on the people who were worshiping idols and not doing good for the widow and the orphan, and just as the Romans would do when they destroyed the temple in 70 AD with the Jewish people who had rejected Jesus, the Messiah. So the powers that be are actually under the control of God. God is sovereign over all. So we cannot be deceived that even if these political powers win or lose, whatever they may be doing, God is in control. God is king over everything. And he uses forces to bring about good, whether it's mercy or judgment, according to his divine plan, whether they know it or not. And this is the scary part. This is why we need to pray for our country. We need to pray for God's mercy on our country that there's not a time of upheaval and judgment. Because for the sins that people of this country are committing, whether it be killing our own children, or whether it be abusing the poor and the widow, completely forgetful of who they are and their dignity, or if it's matters of just a matter of losing ourselves to idolatry, worshiping the god of money or the god of sports or materialism, All of these elements are idols that are compromising us, and the judgment of God is a frightful thing. So our prayers for our country ought to be, God, please have mercy on us for our sins. Please cleanse us from our sins. Hold off your wrath and judgment longer. I want to conclude by saying this. You know this to be true, but it's a great reminder. God is king over everything. All the power, all the sovereignty belongs to him. We do the very best that we can. Keep our souls in a state of grace. Seek confession when possible. Pray when we can. Raise our families. Entrust our children to the power of God and to his divine fatherhood and to marry our mother. These are the things that we need to keep in mind. Because If God is for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of God? Is it trial or nakedness or the sword or powers or principalities, things present or things future? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where our hope is, in God who is actually reigning over the entire universe. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever.